Lord God, what a, what a powerful name. What a wonderful name. Lord, this morning we heard Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. I don't know what happened in that moment. Jesus Christ does. And His love was so great. His name so powerful that something that had never happened before in eternity past or will ever happen again happened on that cross. And Lord, we are... We are here with grateful hearts, penitent hearts, hearts that bow the knee at the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Before I begin the the sermon uh, proper, I, I just want you to note the, the growing family of reminders. If you haven't seen, we now have a rock up there. The purpose of the rock should become evident uh, in, in just a moment. So ordinarily, when we think of uh, sermon introductions, we generally think of a, a few stories or Jokes, some pretty good, some not as. And they're quilted together in a way that they have little or nothing to do with the sermon. Or we might imagine a longer story uh, where we might spend the next 30 minutes sitting in the pew trying to figure out its relevance and missing the sermon altogether. And, And I think that's because of a bit of a misconception And that is that many preachers and most listeners do not see sermon illustrations, short or long, in the way that is best understood. They see them as pictures, and we even use sermon illustrations. We even use uh, the word, and most people see that those illustrations are designed to make the sermon pretty interesting to listen to, but not really that informative. And there's a reason and there's a problem. The problem with the picture is sometimes it is what creates the memory of the sermon itself. So in fact, you talk to somebody a week later, don't challenge me on this, often I can't remember what I, what I preached about. But the notion would be, that was a great sermon. Well, what did I preach? I don't know, but that story you told, I remember that. And by and large, that's what we do. And I'd like to share a different notion, a different perspective. That good sermon illustrations are not pictures, but windows. You see, windows don't draw attention to themselves They don't make themselves the center of attention. They don't make themselves the focal point. They should be clear. And the more crystal clear they are, the more easily you can look through it and see God's handiwork in the view. You know, there was a time when windows on homes were intentionally placed so that you saw the best view. Now they're just wherever it is that they are. 
in sermons we want them intentionally placed. So with that in mind, I hope that you will see why I'm going to use a story from the Bible as a window to look at a commandment from the Bible. You see it right on the front of your bulletin. If you don't, you find it in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. But I need to make some approaching comments so that we can have a sense of the larger context. First, many, just look on the internet, preachers and commentators simply want to hammer on the evils of adultery. Tell us why it's bad, the tragedies that it brings, how we need to display the dishonored and flog them. While perhaps in some sections of society that's necessary, there are, there's room for that. That's not what I'm going to do today. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. It's because of this. 34% in America, 34% of all men, married men and women, acknowledge that at some point they have committed adultery. In the single community, 44% of all the men and women in America in a committed relationship have committed, have uh, acknowledged that they have had sexual relationship outside that coupled unit. So here's what I'm going to infer from that. Anyone listening to me has already been impacted. You already know by simple awareness. Maybe that's all it is. Hey, crazy uncle so-and-so. Others, perhaps by a deeper, more traumatizing pain. Some might feel a profound anger. Others, intense sadness and certainly a devastating loss. The subject alone, the very subject alone can cause emotional responses that run the gamut. So no, I'm not going to take that kind of an approach. We get it. However, my intent is to be as truthful and also as compassionate as Scripture itself is. And that's why I'm using the window of John 8 for us to understand Exodus 20 through divine eyes, not human. John 8, and we're going to go to a few places. We're going to go to John, we're going to go to Matthew, and obviously this is all revolving around Exodus. But in John 8, we we find a story. You see it right there at the uh, the beginning. Uh, we find a story of a woman caught in the act of adultery. And in fact, this is, this is more of an uh, editorial comment, but I mean, one of the reasons that I believe that this entire uh, tawdry episode was intentionally designed to entrap Jesus had nothing to do with this woman other than that she was a useful tool in their process 
was that the man is not there. Is this man Superman? Is he able to escape? Was it only was it only one that found? No, this thing was a setup. I I just am convinced of that myself. Only the woman was there, but any statistical analysis will tell you that men are two to three times more apt to do this sort of thing than women are. But it's the woman. She's dragged forcibly into a public place. She's humiliated. She's separated from anyone to protect her. She is judged and she is de facto, that is, that's what the reality is going to be, sentenced to death without trial. And all that by a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. Now, having said that, I, I, I do want to say that empathy with this woman's uh, plight, does, I'm not trying to minimize her actions. But we should be aware, and you need to be aware, that more sinister sins were taking place that day. And no, those sins do not justify or cover hers. But then that's what our discussion is really all about, isn't it? That is covering the sin problem. Who or what? So this woman was thrown before Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, which, oh, by the way, or who, oh, by the way, I should say, as the second person of the Trinity was in fact uh, present when the commandment that we're looking at today was given. So I'm just thinking, think with me for a moment, that his interpretation is probably better than ours would be. So much in the same way that they, that woman was thrown before the people, Satan throws us before God. You need to know this. This is what he does. He throws us before God and he says, judge him, judge her. And here's the thing. He's right. We deserve it. None of us are innocent. None of us are free from sin. And if you think we are, go back and look at the gospel again. No. They are deserving of death, he says. That's what Satan does. He accuses. Did you know that shaitan or Satan, you know what that word means? It means to accuse. So all I'm saying here is that we shouldn't expect anything less from his minions. Satan lies and Satan accuses. So people who follow after Satan, they're going to lie and they're going to accuse. It just, you know, they look like their father. By the way, I don't want anything to read into that, what I'm not saying. So if you know something, you have a moral obligation to say something, to report, not to accuse to report. When it comes to making accusations, I want you to take great and tremendous care because you're walking in a territory that's owned by someone else that you don't want to be associated with. 
In this case, surely Jesus would say, stone her. You, you do realize that was the expectation. The expectation was that Jesus, as one who upheld the law, would say, stone her. Now, let me just, let me just say this. For a time, uh, Barbara and I lived in a part of the world where this at times happens. In other places near where we were, it happened more frequently. But let me just say something you, you may need to take by faith. And the only reason that we do not think it's strange that Jesus did not say stone her is because he didn't say stone her. And we have 2,000 years of Christian history behind us that says Jesus said, don't do that, essentially. Instead of stone her. You've got to understand that in those days, not only would those men have taken her life, they would have had no remorse and would have celebrated in doing so. Just because that's distant from us does not mean that was not the reality. The fact that Jesus did what he did staggered them. I mean, the whole case file, right? I got to go back to this. I mean, it sickens your heart, it sickens my heart. The affluent, the privileged in this sense, they get away or worse. What I, and you know, I, I can't prove it. I'll know it in glory, or maybe I won't, because maybe there are things we don't need to know and won't care to know at that point. Was let go, you know, and the less fortunate was punished. Only the woman is here. But I want you to hear this part well. And that is at the center, at the very core, the heart of this story is what happens to a sinner caught in the act. What happens to that person when they are laid before the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ? And I want you to keep this in mind, that one day each one of us will appear before Him. Yes, it's the Bema seat, but this we see the ripples of God's grace and mercy will continue to extend to us through all of that time. In this text, we seem to hear two voices very, very loudly. One is, and it vies for our attention, uh, one is the voice of condemnation. Now, a person who's using the voice of condemnation, they wouldn't use the word condemnation. They might say, I condemn you. But they would say, justice. This is just. This is righteousness. This is righteous justice. Do you, not one of those scribes or Pharisees did not have that thought in their head. Uh, I mean, I suppose some of them could have been so politically corrupt creatures, but, but I doubt it. I, they thought they were doing God a service. They thought they were doing the right thing. In fact, that's what they were thinking about Jesus, right? And even the Bible tells us, in the same way that they came after Jesus, there'll come a day for us that when they kill you, they'll, be, they'll think that they're doing God a service. So this shouldn't be too far from our understanding here. And yet the true voice of justice is... The voice of Christ. 
The one uh, appeals to us because in our hearts, we know intuitively that somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay. And yet there's only one person who has the full knowledge of, of the universe at his disposal to make any kind of a righteous judgment at all, and that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, far from saying stoner, he, he, he bends down, he starts writing in the dirt. Which what we ultimately hear is this voice of compassion and forgiveness. Remember this, injustice, not injustice, but injustice, he always remembers mercy. And it's important which voice we listen to. Do we condemn or do we extend grace? Do we create mental scarlet letters or do we see the cross of Christ instead? The voice of one who seeks to judge you by exploiting and exposing all your failures, that's the most common voice that we hear in in the world today. In contrast, the voice of Christ confronts our sin with love. Love understood in a very particular way that includes his sacrifice. And the passage, in fact, does not minimize sin at all. What it does here is it puts it into a context where we can see what Christ did and the sacrifice, ultimately, he was based on the way it could never have been another way because that's the way it was. God never had another plan. He was going to die on the cross. And essentially, he was able to tell her to go and sin no more because he knew. He knew who he was and he knew the price that he would pay. But we can also see this trap where the leaders use malice and hatred, and deception to entrap Jesus. And this woman, they didn't care about her. Unfortunately, you know, we all know the, uh, you know, the, the text, you know, wherever of you out there, you got no sin, yeah, pick up the rock and throw it. And unfortunately, people use that to justify their sin. You know, they get caught or something happens and they'll say, uh, hey, don't throw any stones at me. Dude, you live in a glass house. (laughs) The arrogance. The arrogance of that statement entirely misses the point of the story. The point of the story is the woman was guilty, like David. Guilty. The penalty, death. Depravity of the Pharisees did not make her, let me not forget the scribes because they were there as well, their depravity did not make her sin any less guilt-worthy. The law of Moses called for punishment, but the Lord of the law called for forgiveness. Look what John said in John 1.9. You don't even have to turn there. 
really. If you will confess your sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, it should seem obvious that the scribes and the Pharisees did not actual, uh, accidentally catch this woman. This was, a, this was planned to create a trap for uh, Jesus. And if she got destroyed in the process, so what? They did not care. And that's what's so sad. They didn't care about her at all. She was a means to their ends. And they wanted to create this situation where Jesus would stumble, where he would trip, where I don't know what their thought was, but essentially what you have here is this uh, choice between the literal obedience to the Old Testament law or obedience to the spirit of the law, which they knew nothing of. Jesus came, and every time he would explain the spirit of the law, the, the, the people had their jaws open. They had never heard such a thing before. You know, Jesus never broke the law. That's important to understand. He didn't, he didn't break the law here either. Inside, back to the woman, inside her heart was certain doom. She had seen this before, uh, you know, didn't happen every day, but it happened frequently enough. Her death was certain. She was to rework a title from an old movie, an older movie, Dead Woman Walking. It was certain. It, it was in her heart. It was certain. But then as she's laying or she ultimately ends up standing, that's what the text says, She's left alone with Jesus Christ. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, Sin no more. If Some really important things that we need to understand. One of which is that if you're in Christ, Jesus does not punish you. He disciplines you. He does not punish you. In fact, He was punished for you. It was within His right for Jesus to have her put to death. But instead, he forgave her and took her place on the cross. And what we need to understand most of that about that is like her, we are in a place where our fate is or was sealed. In fact, it is sealed. Prior to Christ, our doom assured scripture says while we were yet sinners you need to we all need to really consider this at a profoundly deep level Christ saved each one of us who know him while we were 
yet sinners. He saved the Apostle Paul, and none of us would match what that man did. I'm not talking about after salvation. I'm talking about for, before salvation. When he says, I'm the chief, he may not have been, if you knew all the information in the universe, but he certainly thought he was, and for good reason. While we were yet sinners, we need to repeat that every day. You and I are not different at all. We're all sinners. Those of us in Christ are sinners saved by grace. And we all have a tendency to deny, to blame. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus died because of it. And through his death, Jesus frees us. He lifts condemnation. He told this woman that he did not condemn her. And like her, each one of us can live a life free from the condemnation of our past. Do you know that's what stops so many people from moving toward the future? Is dwelling on the past. Dwelling on what cannot be changed instead of beginning a new story that allows for a different ending. Not only does he forgive her, he called her woman. Now, yeah, okay, it was a common term. But there were other terms that he could have used. And in fact, it's the same term. It wasn't just because she was female. I think it was a term of respect. Same term he used of his mother, Mary. I think Jesus Christ, I would submit that he understands what being created in the image of God means more than we do. She was deserving of respect, even though she had indeed sinned. Now, I hope that window gives you a notion of how to biblically view the command in Exodus. But I got another one I want to quickly look at. Matthew five twenty-seven and 28. Jesus says, Matthew five twenty-seven and 28, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, our common understanding of this, the, the way we generally understand this, has got to be the bane of nearly every man's existence since it was written. And I'll tell you why. I mean, goodness. I mean, even Adam, when he saw Eve, said, Whoa, man. Which is, by the way, where we get our English uh, woman from. You know, that was the only place where I thought, i got to lighten this sermon up just a bit. That was the only place I could... And, and no, that's not where we get our word woman from. And the word wasn't exactly, whoa. But it could have been translated that way. Uh, so you have 
Adam, as soon as he saw Eve, you need to know this in Genesis 2, 23, it says, when it says, this is now, I mean, it looks like a little poem somebody wrote, you know. That's not exactly what's happening there. You've got to understand what was... Adam had just looked at and named all the animals. I don't know how many animals there were, but that took a while. I mean, just the simple marching past. If they never stopped and he never slept, he's, and he's got he's to look at him. he's got to name them. And the Lord did it for a reason. And the reason was, and I can't help but see it somewhat reflected, I don't know how at the cross yet, but it was his isolation and his solitude and that growing isolation, every pair of animals that he saw walk by and that he named grew and grew and grew and he knew he was alone. There was no mate found for Adam. And so when God created Eve from his rib, which is also can be translated in Hebrew as side, or like as Matthew Henry, uh, some of you may recognize his name as an old commentator from years and years ago, said, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor made out of uh, his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. At the time Matthew Henry wrote that, that was striking. We may think of it as fairly mundane today, but not then. What's my point? Oh, by the way, that uh, a couple other ways that uh, can be translated is like, at last, or wow. We would say wow. They didn't have wow in Hebrew. What's my point? Men were designed by God before the fall to say, whoa, when they saw a woman. I hope none of you are offended by that. To, not, to deny that is to essentially deny our pre-fall construction. Now, there was the fall. So what I'm going to say next is a two-edged sword. First, one of my first goals in this, and this is why I use that bane of every man's existence kind of a thing at the front of that piece, is to free as many men from the fear that they, they have violated or are violating this command on a regular basis. And this based on the words of Scripture, not on my words. You have heard, it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her uh, in his heart. When I was at Emmaus, one of the students asked uh, Dr. Dave Reed, uh, is it a sin to look at a woman? And in typical Dave Reed fashion without skipping a beat he said no it's not a sin to look at a woman it's a sin to look back (laughs) what was he driving at it was simply this because you have a visual or physical attraction to someone other than your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or however that 
state might be more than the next person say does not mean that you are in sin. Get rid of that notion. Doesn't mean anything other than you are a human being created in the image of God. This is a pre-fall construction. We designed that way. Jesus did not say, if you look at another woman, you have violated the command. No. No, and I'll tell you what, and I, you know, I, I, I'm going to get up on a soapbox, but only for a few sentences. I resent the characterization that men cannot control themselves. Absolutely. I reject the notion that there are other countries that say that women cannot control themselves. I absolutely find that that is a perversion of what it means to be created in the Imago Deo. I believe that because of the fall, yeah, we have to put protocols in place. Yes, we have to understand the hazards. We have to build control measures to eliminate mitigate the risks and so forth and so on. But the notion that we are beasts of the field, are animals driven only by instinct, is deeply offensive to me. It really is. I believe that men and women can work collegially together through the power of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Okay. Get off my soapbox. So if looking at a woman is not necessary, the necessary sin in the text, then what is? I'll tell you what it is. It's this phrase, lustful intent. Two words in uh, English. It's one word in the Greek. And it's uh, fascinating. So this is where the difference comes in. It could be easily translated as to set one's heart upon, to covet, to have a deep, longing for. You see, this isn't simple attraction. It's not what it is. This is the premeditated setting aside of time and place to think, to meditate, to imagine, to plan an eventual consummation. This is not a thought that crosses through your mind or saying that someone is attractive. Get that out of your head. That's human stuff. This, what we're talking about here, is the deliberate, intentional, laser-like focus on one thing. So, men, women, simple attraction is the way God made us. So if you're laboring under a condemnation that is actually not born of sin, be free. Be, Be free from that. Coveting and lusting, okay, That's different. Listen, that's different. Because here's the two-edged sword. There are those who go beyond this simple attraction. And they go into this area of lustful intent. Let me just say, as Jesus said, put it aside. Stop it. Go. Sin no more. It's not worthy of you. It's not worthy of God's design. I know I'm over a little bit. I've got... Three little things that I want to leave you here at the end. So I want to, just a few takeaways. And they should be pretty quick. First, guard your eyes and your heart. You know, at this last area that I was just talking about is an area of weakness. Ask God to help you. 
I mean, if you're tempted by pornography, take measures to protect yourself, to protect your family. If you need to put your computer in a common area, fine. If you can afford it, you know, put something like covenant eyes on your electronic devices or something along uh, those lines. Second, be accountable to each other. Okay, let your schedule, your checkbook. You know, lots of trouble comes in with significant money that's unaccountable, unmanaged, and so forth and so on. Yeah, let it be open books. Now, uh, you know, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't born yesterday, so I understand that in many marriages and relationships, these things that I'm even mentioning might be really frightening uh, and or they might even be ridiculed. To you, I just say, do your best. God will honor what you're able to do. Third, most important, practice godly discipline. Here's, Here's an amazing fact. Research, secular research, not Christian research, secular research indicates that regular church attendance significantly reduces the incidence of adultery. How about that? Uh, It's true. I mean, some scoff, right, because of the high-profile failures that we see. But trust me, when there's a high-profile failure, you will see it. That's an incredibly thin slice of the pie. The vast majority, it is a protective factor like no other. And when you add prayer and Bible study and fellowship and worship, it goes a long way. So finally, I'm going to end where I began, and that is at the feet of Jesus. Because it's at the feet of Jesus where we find forgiveness. It's at the feet of Jesus. See, we think it's we think forgiveness is found with each other, and I, I and I hope that it is. But forgiveness is first found in Jesus Christ. Reconciliation, we think, is found with us. And I hope that it is, but it's first found with Jesus Christ. And that's when our forgiveness, and that's when our reconciliation can begin. And it's at the feet of Jesus where our story won't find a new past. It can't. It can't find forgiveness for the past, but it can find a new ending. Father, thank you. Lord, this is a particularly complex and and difficult subject and everyone has very considered ideas and opinions. I pray that I pray that you would work in each one of us to see beyond the things in many ways in this world to the eternal mercies and grace and loyal loving kindness to the measure of whatever has been done if it is turned to Christ in faith While cannot be undone, it can be forgiven. 
And a whole new life began. A life under the direction and obedience of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.